Amen, amen, amen. Let me start today with a question. What do you love? What do you love? Another way to ask this question would be, where does your mind go whenever your mind can go wherever it wants? When your mind is not distracted, when your mind is free to roam, where does your mind go? What does it drift toward? For some people, it's hunting. I know a guy. For some people, it's preaching. Same guy. For some people, it's family. For others, it's activities. Wherever our mind goes, whenever it can go, wherever it wants to go, is always a place of deep affection. Now, some of you I've lost for the rest of the time because you're going to be sitting there thinking, well, where does my mind go? And you're going to start writing down and you're going to start writing down all these things. Look, just hang with me. But wherever our minds go, whenever they can go, wherever they want is a place of deep affection. It is a place that we love. It is going to drift towards something that holds a dear place in our hearts. For me, whenever my mind can go wherever it wants, it goes to the church. I love the church. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor. I'm saying it because I actually love the church. I grew up in the church. My dad's a pastor. My brother's a pastor. I know lots of pastors. I know good pastors. I know jacked up pastors. I know pastors that, that know how to preach. I know pastors who stand there and fill the words with air. And I love them all. Right? I love the church. I love everything about the church. I love the idea of church. I love God's dream being realized through the church. I love the church and its people. I love that it's a movement, that it's not a program. I love that it has a purpose that is divinely ordained. I love the church. I love this church. I love this church. I love our stinky old Walmart. I love it. I love our gospel hospital turned, uh, we turned a sports bar into down at Bay Meadows. I love Bay Meadows. If you've never been to Bay Meadows, you should go. It's awesome. I love everything about 1122. I love our freezing rooms. I love our worship. I love everything about this place. I love it. I love big churches. I love small churches. I love portable churches. I love house churches. I even love churches that have stupid signs out front that say theologically ridiculous things. And you know what? Hey, at least they're trying, you know? I love church. I love it. You see, the church is a people. It's not a program. It's not a place or a destination. It's a, it's a people. It's a movement. It's raw. It's organic. It's unpredictable. It's an unstoppable force. And when done right, and when done right, there's nothing else more beautiful in the world than the church. I love the church. I love it. And so I am pumped about this teaching series that we're in. I'm going to say this word one time because I'm almost a thousand percent sure I'm going to jack it up every time. But the, the title of this series is Ecclesia. Ecclesia, Ecclesia. Ecclesia, Ecclesia. I did it twice right there. I just said it two different ways. Here's the deal. Pastor Joby's going to say it most. So however he says it, we're going to go with that one. Right? That's just going to be the right way. Ecclesia, the church, the idea that the church is a movement. I love it. I love what we're going to be talking so over the, talking about. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the mission, mission, the vision, and the values of the church of 1122 in the context of the church, the big church. And All that, you're going to hear this over and over and over again. Here's the reason I really love the church. I love the church because ultimately, I love Jesus. I love Jesus, and Jesus saw it fit to make us, all believers in the world, to make us his wife. 
He wed himself to us. He betrothed himself to us is what the Bible says. He made us his bride. And so because I love Jesus, I love his wife. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about Jesus's wife, the bride, the church of Jesus Christ. So I'm pumped about it. So today I'm going to kick us off and we're going to talk about church. I hope you're ready. Last week in Pastor Joby's sermon, he gave a great line. Look, if you weren't here last week and didn't hear Pastor Joby's sermon, you should absolutely go check it out because it is life-changing. But in his sermon, he gave a line, and the line was this. In this faith life, in this, the, the life with Christ, we've, we live on two different fronts. We have an air war and a ground war. Now, this air war is us growing in our understanding of what Jesus did for us on the cross. All the, the purposes that Jesus accomplished for us before God in the heavenlies, in the spiritual, spiritual realm, our air war is that. We have this, this war going on around us that Jesus fought and secured victory for us through the cross. And so every day, our view of the cross is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we realize who Jesus is and what he's done. So that's the air war. And then there's the ground war. It's the life that we live. This is the pursuit of holiness. This is the process of sanctification. This is us every day being transformed into the image of Christ. And we, we live this life every day praying and seeking and hoping to grow in our understanding. And that is the ground war. This is the war that we fight day in and day out. And here at 1122, we have air war sermons and we have ground war sermons. Today's sermon is majority a ground war sermon. It's more of a what to do, how to sermon. So we're going to dive right in. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is known as the high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer is Jesus praying. He's the high priest. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. The high priestly prayer happens in three parts. Part one is a conversation that Jesus has with his dad. It's this really intimate conversation between a son and a father where Jesus talks about God, all, all their glory and all the love that they have for each other that they have enjoyed for all of eternity. That's part one. Part two, Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for his closest friends. And then part three, Jesus begins to pray for us. He begins to pray for the people who would believe in the word of the disciples, who would believe in the testimony of the apostles, and that would be us. Did you know that Jesus, while he was a man here on earth, he prayed for you? He prayed for you. The Bible actually tells us that right now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and as we are gathered here today, he is interceding for us on, on our behalf to God the Father. That's pretty awesome. But while he was here on the earth, he prayed for you. And here's what he prayed in John 17, verse 20. It says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see that? When Jesus prayed for you, do you see what he prayed? He didn't pray that you would have happiness. He didn't pray that you would have a problem-free life. 
He didn't pray that you would have money, money or abundance amount, an abundant amount of success. When Jesus prayed for you and when Jesus prayed for me, he prayed for this one thing. He prayed that we would have unity, that we would be one, that we would be whole, that we would be complete, that we would be undivided. You see, when Jesus prays for us, he prays for us to enjoy what he has enjoyed with his father for all of eternity. And so in order for us to understand what Jesus has, is asking for us, we have to begin to wrap our heads around Jesus's relationship to God and God's relationship to himself. We know this relationship as the Trinity and this relationship happens in three parts, God, the father, God, the son, who is Jesus and God, the Holy Spirit. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image. Who is the us? Who is the our? It is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, this relationship has eternally existed in a perfect state of harmony. There's never been a division. There's never been a quarrel. I say that. There's been one time there was a division when Jesus was on the cross and God looked away. But other than that, they have been completely unified. They live in a state of perfect harmony. Everything works all the time. They are constantly loving each other. They are constantly sharing glory. They are constantly lavishing honor onto one another. And they do this through what is called mutual voluntary submission. They mutually voluntarily submit to one another all the time. That is why the Trinity works. Now there's a word for this relationship. This word is known as cosmos. Now cosmos is where we get our word cosmos. And when you think about the cosmos, you think about space and you think about the stars being where they're supposed to be. You think about the planets spinning around the sun and the universe is working exactly how they should work. Now, the cosmos is an outward expression of God's relationship to himself. Everything that works in perfect order is an outward revelation of who God is. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, when God says, let us make man in our image, what is God saying? Let us make man for relationships. Let us make man for relationships. God exists on, in a relational community, and he created us to exist in relational community. Just like God's relationship outworks itself in three parts through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you and I were created to enjoy relationships on three different fronts. Three different fronts. Relationship number one is that you were created to have a relationship with God, the Father. Now, the only way this is possible is through faith in Jesus. Jesus makes a relationship with God possible. But you were created to enjoy God. You were created not, when God created man, he didn't create man so that man could do work for him or so that man could sing songs to him or so that man could make him happy. He created man to share himself with man so that man could enjoy him as much as he's enjoyed himself forever and ever. So you were created to enjoy God. You were also created to, in a relationship to yourself. Now, I don't know if you knew that you had a relationship to yourself, but you do. Everywhere you go, guess who's there? You are. Everywhere you go, you're there. You can't go anywhere without you. You and you are stuck together for a whole long time, hopefully. You got a whole lot of you going on, and everywhere you go, you're there, and you're going to be thinking about you doing your thing the way you want to do it when you want to do it. You and you and you, y'all are stuck. 
But every time you think about yourself, you are operating in relationship to yourself. This is where things like self-value, self-worth, self-esteem, self-image, all of those things are wrapped up in God's design for you to be in a healthy relationship with yourself. So you were created to exist with God. You were created to exist in a relationship with you. And you were also created to exist with, in a relationship with other believers, with other people. You were created to be healthy on relational fronts. God created you to exist healthy and whole, complete as one in three different types of relationships just as he exists in three different types of relationships. You see this? All right, seminary is over. We're going we're to dig in now. When Jesus prayed for us, he prayed for unity. He prayed for wholeness. He prayed for co- completion. So we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about that. Unity, you might want to write this down. Unity starts with you. See what I did there? <laughs> unity starts with you. What God prayed for you, it starts with you. Let me show you what I mean. One of the things in our culture, our appetites, my personal appetite, our culture's appetite, is for us to do things like compartmentalize our lives. It's for us to break our lives down into little buckets that we feel like we can control. And in those buckets, we begin to compartmentalize. And our hope in compartmentalizing is that one bucket won't spill over into another bucket. Like our work bucket won't affect our family bucket. And our family bucket won't affect our hobby bucket. And our hobby bucket won't affect our, our pleasure bucket. We have all these different buckets and we just try to stick stuff in there. And we try to compartmentalize and we're trained to do this in our culture and we just have natural appetites for it. So for me in my life, I've spent a whole lot of time in my life doing what I could do to keep the countertops of my life really clean. Now, why would I do that? Why do I spend so much time cleaning and cleaning and cleaning my countertops to keep them clean? Why? Because this is what everybody sees. This is what everybody sees. And so I have spent an incredible amount of time in my life trying to keep the countertops clean because I don't want anybody to know what's in the drawers. I don't want to really deal with what's going on underneath the surface. And so what I do is spend all of my energy scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing, just trying to keep what you can see clean. Now, I don't know how y'all roll at your house, but at my house, we love some clean countertops. We love them. And by we, I mean she, but we're married, so (laughs) we're a we. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with clean countertops, and I'm I'm not saying my wife's OCD. She is. I'm not saying. I'm just saying we love clean countertops at my house. Why do we love clean countertops? Because you never know who's coming by. You just never know who's coming by, you know? You don't want, you don't want the Kool-Aid juice on the countertop. When people are coming by, they might think you, they might think you're dirty. I don't know about, one of the things I have yet to figure out in marriage is why do we clean before we have people come clean? You know, not that we have people come clean our house a lot, but every now and then there's something special going on and we get some help and then we clean the house to get people to clean the house. We don't want the cleaners to see the dirty countertops and they're there to clean them. It don't make no sense. But the truth is in my life, I do really everything I can to keep it clean up here. But when I start digging underneath the surface a little bit, that's when I get into trouble. And for me, I like to compartmentalize in a few different buckets. 
The first bucket I like to try to compartmentalize or contain is my work bucket. That's where all the bling's at. Now, I learned a while back that as a preacher, there's a few things you should never ever do if you want people to like your preaching. Number one is you just don't talk about money. And number two is you don't talk about comfort food. If you talk about money or fried food, you're out. Nobody's going to like you and you're, you're done though. So because I highly value your opinion, I'm not going to talk about money today. I'm just kidding. I'm going to talk about money. <laughs> Look, here's the truth. Sometimes I love money way more than I should. Sometimes money has got a lot of power in my life. A whole lot more power than it should. I don't know why. I don't have any money. Why, do, why does money have power when I have none? These are ones. There's nothing here, people. I, I got, but somehow, money creates anxiety. Money creates worry. The power of money gets in my soul. But you know what I don't do? I don't tell anybody. I don't invite accountability. I don't want any help. I just put money back in my drawer and I close the drawer. I don't want to deal with it, and so I try to hide it. Sometimes in my life, God has told me to be radically generous, and you know what I've done? I can't do it. It costs too much. I love money too much. Sometimes in my life, God has called me to be very simple in my gift, and you know what I do? I just rationalize and I justify myself right out of doing what God told me to do, and then not only does money have power, I've got guilt from being disobedient, but I don't want to tell anybody. I just close it up in the drawer. That's my work drawer. I know this is none of y'all, so y'all just kind of have to live my life with me right now. Sorry. So here's this. How about this one? Have you ever felt like life just beat you down? I mean, really, have you ever just felt like you took a swift beating in life? I have. And you know, when those times come, you know what my answer is when people say, how you doing? Things are great. How can I pray for you? Don't, Don't waste your prayers on me, brother. Don't waste your prayers on me. You know, who need, you know who really needs your prayers? That guy. But I, inside, I just feel like I've taken a beating. But I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to invite accountability. I'm just going to put it in the drawer and I'm going to close it up. And here's what happens. As I put things in the drawer, I start faking it. And I start trying to hold everything together with shoestrings and duct tape. Now, my grandpa told me when I was a kid, he told me this a bunch as I was growing up. He would say, boy... Now, my grandpa's not Joby's dad. They're different people. But he would say, he would say, he would say, boy, you better hold things together with shoestrings and duct tape than anybody ever met. And that's a fact. That's a fact. I can hold things together by threads, just hoping, not dealing with it, not being honest, but just hoping that if I can hold it together long enough, that it'll just pass by and eventually be gone. I hold things together at work with shoestrings and duct tape all the time. Don't tell anybody because I work here. (laughs) Oh, this is my family bucket. So I got my work bucket and I got my work drawer. Now I got my my family drawer. Now I was going to put these on and just see if y'all can hang with me the rest of the sermon wearing Mickey Mouse ears, but I can't even do it. I'm not going to talk bad about Mickey. So we're just going to put him back in there. We're going to talk about that later. But I got a baseball. Man, the truth is that some of us are way too into our kids' activities. 
We're into our kids' achievements way more than we should be. So here's what happens is that, is that we see our kids doing something successful or not doing some, something successful that we want them to do successful. And the reason we want them to be successful is not for their good, but for our self-validation. And so we begin to put incredible amounts of pressure on our children. And that, children, and that pressure we know is one day going to make them buckle. It's going to create in them some scars and some wounds. And we know that we do it, but we don't want anybody else to know because then we'd have to change. So we just put it in the bucket and we close it up. We celebrate what our kids do, not what our kids are. But we better not tell anybody because we, we might have to change. Oh, and then we have our hobby bucket. I don't know who put this in here, but this is not my hobby. I'm just stating that for the record. I'm not hating you if you do that, but that ain't me. That ain't my hobby. I got some tickets to a golf tournament here. So some of our hobbies are golf. Some of our hobbies are hunting or fishing or whatever it is that fills our hobby time. There's nothing wrong with hobbies, but some of us know that we spend a whole lot more time on our hobbies than we do on the things that are most important. But we don't want to address it. We don't want to deal with it. We just stick it in a drawer and we close the drawer. Some of us know that we spend way more time on some things that are completely useless than we should. We spend a whole lot of time on things that cannot help us, things that cannot make us healthy, things that cannot help us live whole. We just spend time, hours and hours and hours. Some of us know that we are just flat out addicted to social media. We're flat out addicted to it, but we don't want to tell anybody. We don't want to invite accountability or get any help. We don't actually want to be healthy because being healthy would be, we would have to change. So what do we do? We just put it in the drawer. I mean, how silly would we have to be if we, you're like, Pastor Brett, what do you want me to do? How silly would I have to be to invite accountability for me not to be on Facebook so much? Well, I don't know, maybe silly enough to want to be healthy. Maybe silly enough to want to be whole. Maybe silly enough to want to spend your time on more kingdom productive things on things that can make your heart full instead of your mind full of junk. Maybe that's, maybe, maybe, or not, just put it in the drawer and close it. Now the last drawer, this is the junk drawer. Now we all have a junk drawer or we've all had junk drawers in our life. This is the drawer where we put our, our secret addictions or our past emotional hurts where we put the sins that, that we've committed against people that we don't want to confess or the sins that have been committed against us that we don't want anybody to know about. I'm not judging. I'm just stating that what we do is we put those things in a junk drawer because we know we don't want that stuff to hurt our family. We don't want that stuff to affect our jobs, and we definitely don't want that stuff to get involved with our free time, and so we just try to repress it down in the secret corner of our hearts so that nobody could know, and maybe, just maybe, it'll go away. Maybe, just maybe, it'll go away. In my life, I've had a few junk drawer seasons. One was when my mother passed away when I was 14 years old. My mom died of cancer. And her death created in me some bitterness. And this bitterness took hold in my soul. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't get any help. I never went to my dad or my brother or my friends. I just tried to bury it. I just repressed it down in my stomach. Just tried to hold it down. And here's what that bitterness began to do. That bitterness began to create in me a pessimistic worldview. It began to create in me a mouth full of sarcasm. 
Because here's what I would do is I would be sarcastic and discredit people. And if I could discredit you just enough, then there was no way you could hurt me. And so I would build walls of defense with sarcasm and pessimism so that people couldn't actually know me so that I would be protected from being hurt. Another junk drawer moment for me was a relationship I had in college that was just not good. And this relationship created, created a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And I didn't tell anybody. Every now and then I would confess something to God. But even after a while, that went away. I never invited people in. I never wanted to be healthy. I just wanted to hold on. Until I was married for a couple of years. Years later, until I had been married for a couple of years, and Jesus outed my junk. Because Jesus said, you're not going to hold on to that. You're going to be healthy. And you're going to be whole. For me, I grew up in religion. I grew up thinking about, I told you, I've been in church my whole life. And sometimes when you grow up in religious institutions, something that your heart can lean toward is being very, very judgmental. When you don't have a very dirty past or a jacked up past and, and you measure your past as clean relative to you, when you start defining what is clean and unclean in your mind, here's what happens. You get a judgmental heart. You start to judge other people and you start to, to think people, you're better than others. I did that for a long time, but I never told anybody. I just put the little black book of my life, my secrets. I just put them in a drawer. And I closed the drawer. And then I just kept scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing the countertops. Just hoping nobody would ever look down underneath the surface. But here's the challenge. Here's the problem. You're not a piece of wood or granite. You're not a countertop. We don't have the luxury of compartmentalizing because it's not how you were designed by God. You see, God created you with a heart, with a body, with a soul, and with a mind. And all of this is interconnected. It all works together. We actually can't compartmentalize. No matter what we think or what we believe about ourselves, our junk is spilling out into the other areas of our lives. We can't help it because it's all connected. Anytime, anytime I try to separate the cares, the concerns, the hurts, or the hopes in my heart from the things that fill my mind, then I am not living the way God intended. Anytime I try to get this and this separate, you can't put things up here and those things not take hold in here. It's just not possible. It's not the way you were designed. And anytime I try to separate those things out, I try to divide them. The Bible says that I am being what is called double-minded. In James chapter 1, verse 8, it says that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And so that must mean that a stable, dependable, whole, healthy person, a person with integrity is not double-minded. They don't have separate agendas. They're not trying to be compartmentalized. There's nothing secret down underneath that they are keeping. They are not intentionally manipulative or deceitful. This person, a whole person, a single-minded person, is one as Jesus prayed for them to be one. They are unified. They are whole. They are complete. One of our key values here at 1122 is biblical integrity. If you were to look up our mission, vision, and values, value number one is that, is that we practice biblical integrity. The, the root word of integrity is integer, meaning one, meaning whole, complete, undivided. Biblical integrity is knowing what is right and what is wrong as defined by the Bible. 
Now we do this, we practice this as a church here at 1122 by making everything we do, all of our music, all of our preaching, all of our uh, new gen, everything that we do, all of our missions, everything we do is about one thing here at 1122. It's actually about one person and his name is Jesus. And the way we practice biblical integrity is by making everything in our lives about Jesus, about one things. And every now and then, if, God forbid, we were to slip off that and start making this about something else, we would confess and we would repent and return to the one thing that is most important. That's how we practice biblical integrity. And I don't say we as church staff, I say we as the church of 1122, we practice biblical integrity. Integrity. Webster's Dictionary defines integrity this way. The quality or state of being complete or undivided. So what do we do in our lives? As part of the church of 1122, and today may be your first time, and if so, welcome. Glad you're here. You can get a whole lot out of this. But as a part of the church, how do we cultivate a framework by which we can live whole, healthy, full? We can live a life marked in biblical integrity. How can you experience on a daily basis the unity that Jesus prayed for you? Well, I'm going to show you how. You see, as followers of Jesus, our lives are subject to a greater authority. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is that we have surrendered ourselves, we have submitted ourselves unto the rule and the reign of Jesus. And here's what that means. It means that we want to think what he thinks. We want to say what he says. We want to see the world through his view. And the way we think what Jesus thinks, the way we say what Jesus says, and the way we see the world through his view is through the Bible. As Christians, the Bible is our highest authority. It is our highest authority. Authority. The Bible is what cleans the junk out of the drawers. The Bible is what shines light into dark places. The Bible is what makes dead hearts come alive. Romans 1 says that the gospel, the declared gospel, it is the power of salvation for all those who hear and believe. In order to hear the gospel, you have to hear the word. The word of God is the power from which we live. It is the highest authority. That's why you come to church. Now, there's no doubt that I love the music here. And there is no doubt that I believe Pastor Joby is the best preacher in the country. No doubt. But that's not why you're here. You're here because your soul is crying out for the word. You want the word. You may not know it. I just outed you. You you want the word. The word of God is our highest authority. The Bible is our answer and our defense in life. Why? Well, Because it was Jesus' answer and his defense in life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Matthew 4, verse 1. Matthew 4, verse 1 says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up unless you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written. 
You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Do you see what Jesus did there? Every time the enemy came against him, Every time the enemy brought accusation, every time the enemy tried to attack him or tempt him or get him to betray his heart and his love for God, do you see what Jesus did? He says these three words. He says, it is written. It is written. It is written. In the air war, this, the air war, they're the three most important words that you could ever m- memorize. And the air war is, it is finished. In the ground war, the most, the, the most potent, the most powerful three words you could ever memorize are, it is written. It is written. When our enemy comes against us, accusing us and trying to divide our thinking, trying to get us to compartmentalize, we are not defenseless. We have a double-edged sword that pierces to the bone and the marrow. When the enemy attacks us and he begins to close in all around us with this world and this world begins to tell us that we're the most important thing or that we don't matter at all, we are not defenseless. We have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit, the sword of truth. We can fight back. God did not leave us here alone in this world to fend for ourselves. He gave us his word and his word is all we need. And so the question is, is the word of God in your heart? Is the word of God in your heart? And so I'm going to close today by trying to give you a little bit of ammunition in the ground war. In my life, when the enemy comes against me, here are some things that I do to fight back. And so if you have a, uh, it, wherever you are, grab your, if we had pews, I would say pew belt. Grab your gray chair belt and buckle up. So we're, because we're about to rapid fire I'm going to give you some ammunition to fight back against the enemy when the enemy comes against you. This is how you use the word of God to live healthy and whole and full and to keep your minds on the things above. This is how I do it. This is how I was trained to do it. So I'm going to try to help you out. Here it goes. You ready? Whenever the enemy comes against you and tells you you're not good enough because he will and he has. Whenever the enemy comes against you and tells him you're not good enough, you tell him, you're dang right, I'm not good enough. But God said, it is written in Romans 8, uh, chapter 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm in Christ Jesus, so you can't condemn me. Be gone, Satan. That's how you fight back. When the enemy comes against you and the whispers in your head begin to rise and the enemy's telling you that you're still guilty and that you're not worthy to be loved, you tell him, I hear you. I was guilty, but Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 say that all fall short of God's glory. Everybody has fallen short, but I am justified by grace and I am redeemed through faith and that this is God's divine forbearance in my life, that he would pass over the former things and in him I would be now covered in his righteousness. I am free. Be gone, Satan. I am not guilty anymore. When the enemy comes against you and he tells you to lust, you tell him, I don't have to, because it says in Psalm 119, because God said, it is written in Psalm 119, 11, that I have hidden God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. Psalm 1013 says that I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Job 31.1 says that I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will keep them pure because the eyes are the lamp of the body, Satan, and I don't want you in my soul, so you cannot have my eyes, so be gone. So be gone. 
when the enemy comes against you and he tells you that you are your past, you tell him to get behind me, Satan, because 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that I am in Christ. And anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. So be gone, Satan. When he tells you to be afraid, you tell the enemy to go to hell because uh, 2 Timothy 1.7 says that God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of sound mind. And you can tell the enemy to go to hell and you're not even cussing. I think that's true. <laughs> when he tells you that you're unlovable, you tell him that God said... It is written in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, not persecution, not famine, not, not nakedness or danger or sword. In all things, we are more than conquerors. Neither life, nor death, nor height, nor depth, nor angel, nor power, nor anything else in all of the world can separate me from the love that is mine in Christ Jesus. So be gone, Satan. Be gone. When he tells you to love this world and the things in it, you tell him, I will not. I will not because Colossians 3 verses 1 says that, that I have been raised with Christ. And I will seek the things which are above, seated at the right hand of God. I will put my mind on the things of God. I will not think on the things of this earth because this is all passing away. And this is not my home. So be gone, Satan. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that we've been given all the tools that we need to live in victory, to live in wholeness, to live in the unity that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. Another thing I do is that I sing songs. Now, I'm not a good singer at all. It's actually really painful for me to experience, and I'm the one singing. But one of the ways that I try to keep my mind pure and I try to stay focused on good, godly things is that I sing songs. The way that I fight back against the enemy is that I sing songs. You can ask the staff here at 1122. They all think I'm crazy. and I'm, They don't know, even know why I do this. I'm about to out myself. But one of the things that I do is that I sing, I'll be walking into some meeting where somebody has train wrecked their life through some horrible sin struggle and, and all the pieces are down and I can just feel the demons of hell oppressing that room because the demons do not want that soul to be healthy or whole. They want it to be destroyed and dead. And God, for whatever reason, is sending people like me in there to bring the death back to life through the power of Jesus. And as I'm walking into that meeting, here's what I'm singing. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I am covered by Jesus. So I'm going to go fight with Jesus. It doesn't even have to be heavy stuff. It doesn't even have to be bad times or hard times. I do this all the time. I sing songs all the time. That's why you need to buy our album. Not because it's awesome, even though it is, but you need to get God's word into your heart. That's why we sing songs. The Apostle Paul says, sing songs and hymns and heavenly songs. And these things are uplifting unto the soul. I have small kids and I'm trying to teach them the Bible. I have an almost six-year-old and almost three-year-old. Five and two is another way to say that. <laughs> I have small kids and I'm trying to teach them the Bible. I bet right now that my five-year-old 
knows probably 40 or 50 Bible verses. And I'm not saying that so that you think I'm an awesome parent. Maybe I am. I don't know. But my heart's intent is not that you would think I'm awesome, but that you would just see how serious I am about the word of God being in my kid's life. I want my kids to know the Bible. And so at my house, every day we read the Bible twice a day. Every day, we read it twice a day. Every night that I can, every night that I'm home, we sit down at the dinner table and we eat dinner. And you know what we don't need at our dinner table? Phones. Just saying, different sermon. Uh, But we eat dinner together and we talk. And as dinner's wrapping up, we read the Bible. I have this little children's Bible that just sits in the middle of the table with the napkins on top of it. And I take the napkins off and my girls now, they'll say, Daddy, read us the Bible. Daddy, read us the Bible. And so I'll read the Bible and I'll ask them a couple of questions. There's questions in the Bible and sometimes I'll just say, what do you think that says about God? Do you see Jesus anywhere in that story? And then they'll, we'll finish reading up two stories out of that Bible and then they just go back playing with all their stuff, pushing strollers and Doc McStuffins. That's just... And then at bedtime, after bath time, we do bedtime. And at bedtime, we read the Bible again. And we read what's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Look, if you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible, you need to get it. It it literally is the greatest resource a parent can have in teaching their kids the Bible. If you are new to Christianity and you don't really understand the Bible at all, the Jesus Storybook Bible will actually help you understand the whole story of God. It's fantastic. I can't tell you enough. Get it. That's That's my marketing thing, you know. Zondervan, they should love me right now for pitching their Bible. But seriously... They should sell like 10,000 Bibles today because 1122 bought one and then bought one for their family because it's that good. But I read the Jesus story storybook Bible to my kids. Every night we read it and we talk about it. Why? Why am I so lovingly trying to just love the word of God down my daughter's throats? Why? Because when the day comes that this world starts to lie to them. And when the day comes that the enemy is attacking them, I want them to have all the tools that they need to live a life of godliness. I want my daughters to love God. And how can you love God if you don't know God? And the only way to really know God is through his word. God gave us his word so that we could know him so that we could feast at his table and we could be filled by him. Parents, I beg you, give your kids the word. Give your kids the word. This church is a huge part of that. Right across these walls in New Gen and in New Gen and all our campuses, kids right now are getting the word of God poured over them and poured on them because the word of God is what transforms human hearts. Give your kids the word. The greatest gift my dad ever gave me was the word. My dad's 63 years old. He has degenerative Parkinson's. He's the greatest pastor I've ever known and the greatest man I've ever known. And the reason I think that is because every morning when I woke up, I'd walk by my dad's office every morning of my life and my dad would just be reading his Bible. Every day until I was 15, 16 years old, we read the Bible, Father and Son. Every day, my dad loved the Word of God into me. 
and it's defined everything about me. He's loved it into me. My dad's 63. He has Parkinson's. He barely ever leaves his house. And you know what? When I go and stay with him, do you know what I see him do every morning at 63 with Parkinson's? You know what he does every day? He reads the word. And because my dad is so intimate with God through his word, when my dad sees God face to face, he knows exactly what he's looking for. Because he sees God every morning in the word. So when he sees God face to face, it will not be a strange thing. He will finally be home. The greatest gift my dad ever gave me was the word. So here's how I want to close. The word of God has power. The word of God is our highest authority. And here's what the word of God does. When we start to put the word in, God starts to toss the junk out. That's just what he does. You don't have anything to do with that. That is how it's designed. When God puts the word in, the junk starts coming out. And so today, you've been here. You've been under the word. So the question is, as the word is rattling around in your junk drawer, what needs to come out? James chapter 5, verse 16 says that if you confess your sins one to another, then you shall be healed. 1 John 1, 9 says, confess your sins. And God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and heal all your unrighteousness. And so the challenge, the response today is for you to empty the junk drawer. It's been in there too long. It's cost you too much because you've been trying to hide it. And maybe it hasn't cost you anything yet, but it's just a matter of time and you know it. And you know it. So today's the day where you need to come to the altar. You need to dump all your junk out because you want to be healthy and you want to be whole and you want to be full. Confession does not forgive sins. Jesus does. But confession is how we realize the healing that is in Jesus. Some of us need to come to the altars and just pour our junk out before the Lord. We're going to respond in two ways. One, we would invite you to come every week. You come and you pray. We said we respond through prayers. We respond through giving. We respond through worship. Today, as you come and pour your stuff out before the Lord, you can do that two different ways. One, you can kneel at our altar benches and come and just do work with the Lord. And two, we're going to actually have people down here to receive you. Because there is something supernatural about confessing your struggles, confessing your strongholds, confessing your hurts, confessing your sins to a person. Now, I'm not talking Catholics. Some of y'all's Catholic heads just blew up. I'm not saying it's necessary. I'm just saying there's something supernatural in it that God uses. So we're going to have people down here for you to come, and they want to pray for you, and they want to help you. But you got to walk down, and you got to pour your junk out before the Lord. Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be unified? Do you want to live complete under the rule and reign of Jesus? Well, healing is available. Let's respond together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good. You are a good, good dad. I pray that as your word has gone out, that it is pierced to the bone and the marrow. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of the Bible. Father, we thank you that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but that, but that you have set us free, that we are your children. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage and the, 
the uh, faith to step out and to empty our drawers, to, to try to, to take steps toward getting rid of the things that we've been hiding so that we can be free and we can live as you intended us to live. We love you more than anything in this world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can stand with us and we're going to respond. We invite you to come. We invite you to come and do work with the Lord. Let's respond together.